If you would turn with me, our opening scripture will be Psalm 34, page 638. Psalm 34 on page 638. So a few announcements and things for us to praise and also to pray for. Uh, the first is that next Sunday, August 27th, we will not have worship services. So if you, if you arrive here, you might be here by yourself. So we're not going to have church next Sunday. Uh, the next is a wonderful praise. Uh, Roger and Deborah are in the Metroplex uh, with, their, um, with Deborah's son, Michael, and his wife, Dominique. And they have had a new child, a great miracle. Paxton Morris, and so we're thankful for this pregnancy and for what God has done there. Uh, the Placencia family is in California, and if you've been watching the news, you've seen that there is a hurricane, Hurricane Hillary, and they are directly in the path of that hurricane, them and many millions of people there. So we're going to pray and ask for the Lord's protection um, against that hurricane. Amanda Haynes is in the hospital right now. Uh, she is pregnant and due in November. And they're going to keep her in the hospital through the birth of the child to do dialysis. So we're going to be praying for her. Also, Brooke Beam, um, Bill and Kathy's daughter-in-law, is pregnant and having some um, have, has an at-risk pregnancy. So we're going to be in prayer for her. Rubia and Angelica's grandmother had a stroke yesterday morning. And she is already having some difficult health. And so... We're going to pray for her as well. We're going to join the Lord in all of these places. And so we have a fitting scripture to read this morning. In Psalm 34, we'll read verses 1 through 8. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. The poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him, and saved him from all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Pray with me this morning as we trust the Lord together. Lord, we ask for your spirit to be poured out in your house this morning. That it would be the desire of every heart here to come into agreement with you. Lord, we ask for your name to be praised and glorified and lifted high through our worship and our prayers and the message that you share with us today. We pray for each of these challenging places of friends and family and those whom we love, Lord, and we pray for your will to be done in each of these places, not just for 
our desires to be complete, but your will to be done, and the world may know that you are God alone. We join together for your praise this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
in the morning when I rise in the morning when I rise in the morning when I rise give me Jesus give me When I come to die, when I come to die, when I come to die, give me Jesus. all I need Oh, it's all I need Won't you give me Jesus Oh, it's all I need In the morning when I rise When I lay
from heaven and all who are thirsty would thirst no more I wonder if I can drink of this fountain the least of ten thousand I come here at the
Well, good morning. It is awesome to be with y'all and to share in the word that the Lord has for us. If you would turn with me, we'll be in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 on page 1301, if you're in the church's Bible. So we are going to get right to reading in scripture this morning. So look with me at Romans 8.28, and we'll read this this well-quoted, well-known scripture together. Paul says, and we know all things, excuse me, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What an extraordinary verse that this is. Unfortunately, for many, this verse is void of meaning and instruction and authority because the words are understood out of context and misapplied. For most, there is little difference between this great scripture and worldly self-help statements like these. Everything happens for a reason. Everything will be all right in the end. Life goes on today, but tomorrow it will be better. Sometimes it takes a wrong turn to get to the right place. Or even the darkest night will end and the sun will rise again. Think about how many times you've heard statements like this and even people bringing the Lord's name into the conversation. Paul's monumental and marvelous statement, though, is not compatible with the carnal things of this world, with ourselves, with our jobs, with our friends, and with our stuff. Paul is and has been going out of his way to draw each of us and draw the readers of Romans into this deep, life-changing, soul-saving, complexion-renewing good news of Jesus and his spirit and God the Father. To say that there has always been this remarkable, strategic plan before time began for each of us to be delivered from the death penalty of sin and into a spiritual inheritance. So when we read this verse or any verse, we've got to leave the thoughts of this world. We've got to leave what is normal, what is common. We've got to leave the thoughts about coworkers and friends and anxieties and fears and all the troubles of this world. We cannot bring into this life-changing gospel. Instead, this life-changing gospel has to come out alive from God's word and breathe direction and purpose and understanding into the things of this world. We have to join in spiritually so that when our ears hear, it's with spiritual ears. When our eyes see, they are opened 
to this understanding. And when our hearts decide and align, it is with everlasting truth, not with self-help. So it's not the things in this world we're trying to find meaning in. Very serious question that is underneath today's passage. What do we want? What do each of us want? Do we want the things of this world, the things of our flesh, the things of our carnal mind, where we hope that all is well that ends well? Or do we want the things of the Spirit? Do we want to be drawn out of this world and to God the Father? Because there are big words in today's scriptures that we're going to read. Words like salvation and hope, prayer, intercession, purpose, predestination, calling, justification, and glory. And although the world tries to imitate these things, the world tries to offer something that seems compatible with these things, there is no worldly or physical substitution for the things that the Spirit has in store for us. So I want to highlight some important aspects of this verse we've just read that I believe will help us to gather our footing before we kind of zoom out and look at this passage. So let's read this verse again. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This verse has three different ideas that are kind of overlapping and, and competing with one another, it, it might seem. But the order in which they were written is different than what we read. The, the Greek puts them in a different way, which is important for us to see. The first thing that Paul says is that we know that those loving God. Paul states this as a fact, that for those who love God, there are expectations. There are assumptions and there are standards. Guarantees, if you will. Now in the Greek, this love is an ongoing action. We think of love as completed, done with. We love God, done. But the love Paul describes is ongoing. I-N-G. It's agape love that's not conditioned by anything. This promise that God offers is for those who are continuously in love with God. And think about that statement. We use the phrase in love um, in romantic earthly relationships. And somehow we categorize the love we have for God as different. But what Paul is saying is that we are to be in love forever with God. That means that every thought we have, every experience we counter, every scripture we read comes into that focus that we are in love with God first. The next thing Paul says is that all things work together for good. This is a problematic statement because many kind of pull this as far away from scripture as they can to say all things work together for good instead of seeing it exactly where it is right here in scripture. I believe the all things that Paul is talking about 
is the things that he has been talking about. Why would Paul be talking about this grand plan of salvation and then go, but anything, anything in life, stubbing your toe, meeting a new person, having a good meal, all those things God is working out for good. That doesn't make any sense, does it? But really that's what we want scripture to say so that we can kind of manipulate and twist our lives and assume everything God is doing for his purpose. But that's not at all what Paul is saying. He's saying that all the things that he has been trying to unpack for us, God's righteousness, his law, his justification, his grace, his peace, his plan of salvation to overcome the death penalty of sin, and his spirit and that work and changed believers, all of those things work together for good. This good that Paul describes is a spiritual term. It's not good like how we think of the chairs that we're sitting in. They're good. They're comfortable. They've got four legs and a back, right? Not at all. Good from the earliest passage in Genesis describes something that is functioning as God had intended. So we cannot mince words and give carnal things like chairs spiritual understanding. We can't go, mm, this is a good chair that I'm sitting in. God is good. It seems silly, right? But do you see how we do that in our everyday lives and we try to make the things that we're encountering spiritual when they're not? Instead, God's plans work together for God's good purpose. The third thing Paul says is to those called according to his purpose. Now, we don't read it here in our, in our translation, but there is the word being, I-N-G. There's that word again of continuous action. The word being is in this verse. So the calling and purpose are ongoing and not a one-time thing. We don't just, you know, get our purpose card that we receive while waiting in line. And we don't just get our, our calling card that we receive while waiting in line and go, okay, now I've figured it out. No, it is to be ongoing that we are continually being obedient and receiving God's calling and his purpose. Meaning that the things that are happening for God's purpose depends on us continually being obedient to what he's doing. So we've got these three understandings in this verse, and it's really like a, a word sandwich. Okay, so think about this with me. The, the top layer of this, of this word sandwich is we know that those who, excuse me, we know that those loving God. So there are those that love God. That's the top layer. And the bottom layer is that there are those that are called according to his purpose. And in the middle of those two things is the meat of the sandwich. And the meat is that all things are working together for good. You can't have a sandwich without these layers though, right? 
It's silly to just grab a piece of meat and eat it. That's why a sandwich was designed this way. There's a top and a bottom. There are layers. And the layers hold the things in the middle together. And these layers are our participation in what God's doing. That we love God continuously. And that we're called according to his purpose. We cannot agree to this preposterous idea that our culture, that our world, that even many in the church have have kind of put together for this verse to imagine that we're like painters. That we're like painters and we're just splattering paint on a canvas. And that we're, we're making chaotic streaks in different directions. And that then somehow God takes all those chaotic, self selfish things that we've done and then makes it into a piece of art for his glory. Instead, Paul has he's spent eight and a half chapters for us to this point. He's building ideas one upon another. God's plans are like spiritual cogs in a machine that are, that are fitting together precisely so that they, they turn and move for an efficient and strong and purposeful spiritual outcome. Our God is a God of great love, but he is a God of order and purpose, not just for us, but for his namesake. This is the passage that we, we read today. Last week, Deborah gave us an incredible word in chapter 8. A message about the spiritual groaning that creation has, that that creation itself longs for mankind, for you and for I, to understand God's holiness. And creation is longing for us to understand truly who God is and align with God's plan as agents against sin. If you miss that message, I hope you'll listen to it because It is one of the most transformative messages that I've ever heard. One of the things that we learned was the the suffering that Christ experienced on earth. Jesus suffered both against sin as he saw those whom he loved entrapped by it, and as he, he took on the sin of the world to be crucified. In the same way, we are to grieve against this sin of the world as we're united with the Lord's ways against it. So we have to see that that just before this passage, as we learned last week, that Paul said Jesus suffered against sin and so should you. So in no way can we read into this passage that God is somehow now okay with our stuff. I pray that we would clearly understand Paul's message today, not as a a friend giving us the self-help that we want to hear, but as an apostle's teaching that only God's ways work together for God's purpose. So let's read together our passage, Romans 8, 24 through 30. Paul says, For we were saved in this hope, But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? 
But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, as we study these verses, we will see that Paul mentions these all things that we see in verse 28. That all of these things work together for God's purpose. Clearly, our friends in the Old Testament, the Hebrews, all things didn't work together like they wanted it to, did it? For they went in and out of salvation, deliverance, bondage, and even as slaves to other nations. So clearly, even for God's beloved, all things that they wanted to do their way did not work out, did it? So the plan that we read today is a part of God's salvation. And God's salvation plan includes many things and parts that work out for his purpose. The first thing that we read in verse 24 is Paul mentions salvation. And he uses the past tense to describe it. He says, for we were saved. As a statement of fact that at a point in time, we were, we were saved. This is not so much something that we ought to clutch to, like a, a membership card to a special store. Instead, this salvation he's talking about is like a wedding anniversary. Becoming saved demonstrates our relationship to the Lord, and it marks our beginning as a new creation and for ongoing salvation. The next thing that's working together as a part of this is hope. Let's read verses 24 and 25 again. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is, is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So hope we can imagine, even using the illustration of a marriage, hope is that this marriage continues to get better. It's not that it's done because one day two people said vows, but instead that there is more and more and more. This hope produces perseverance. And the hope that he's, he's talking about is not just winning the lottery. It's not just, I hope I win the lottery, even though there's a, a one and whatever, whatever, whatever chance. But it's an expectation based on trust. The things that he, he's told us we should hope for are the finalized process as adopted sons and daughters. Hope for the coming in to suffering against sin 
and grieving against its effect. The hope of redeemed bodies to be eternally with God. These are things that we can trust in because of who God is. These are things that should be reminders for us in what seem like long or difficult days. We can trust him. We know he does indeed have a plan. This hope is to enable us forever to persevere. The next thing working together is the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's read verses 26 and 27 again. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. I absolutely love this understanding here. First off, our Bible translation, it says weaknesses, plural, in verse 26. You can see that. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. Now, I'll tell you that that although it's plural here, it's just a smoother way to read it. The Greek is clear that it is singular. And what this means is that, that contrary to popular opinion, weakness isn't synonymous with, well, everybody sins. The weakness we read is about our immaturity related to spiritual prayer. In a sense, you and I can't help it. We do not know what the Spirit knows. Even if we've been walking with the Lord for many years, can you and I know all the things that the Holy Spirit of God knows? No. And that's our weakness. So even when we pray, even when we pray for what the Lord is doing, we're, we're praying in a different way than the Spirit prays because we don't know what the Spirit knows. Do you see how different this weakness and limitation is rather than a self-imposed excuse or acceptance for sin? This isn't the Spirit meeting us halfway. This is not a, a spiritual bargain. We're not bargaining with the Spirit like we're at a yard sale or a flea market. We haven't arrived yet completely, and therefore we are dependent on the Spirit of God in prayer. Hold your marker here. Turn with me to Matthew 6 on page 1116. Matthew 6, page 1116. Now, here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to disciples and crowds. And he's going he's gonna to give to us what we know as the Lord's Prayer. But I want you to take notice of what Jesus says. He doesn't tell the crowds and disciples what to pray, but how. 
See, he's talking about people who are hypocrites and they make prayer all about them and they pray out on street corners and they raise their hands and they want everyone to know what they're doing for their vanity and their glory. And Jesus is trying to, to teach those who want a closer walk how to pray. We'll begin in Matthew 6, verse 8, second half of verse 8. Jesus says, For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Jesus tells his disciples and those wanting to follow him that God knows what we need before we pray. Deborah has taught about this often, that she doesn't come to the Lord with her, her big list of do's and don'ts, and please do this and don't do that and fix this and don't fix that. The Lord knows everything. He doesn't... The Lord knows what we need before we pray, and Jesus tells us how to submit and align with the will of the Father when we come before Him. There's nothing wrong with reciting this prayer, but that is not the goal. It's no different than reciting the Ten Commandments. The goal isn't to know them. The goal is to do them. The goal isn't just to do them, but for our hearts to be changed by them. And likewise, this prayer was meant that our heart would be changed and understanding would be changed, that we would leave the things that we want figured out for our purpose and understand how God wants to work them out for his purpose. Turn with me next to 1 John 5 in the church's Bible on page 1402. 1 John 5, page 1402. We'll read together verses 14 and 15 of 1 John 5. John says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. John tells us that the Spirit knows, helps us know what to pray. John tells us that the Spirit helps us to communicate with God. John tells us that the Spirit helps us spiritually to be in alignment with God, not asking out of our flesh, but in concert, in harmony, in desire with God's will. Likewise, back in Romans, what we read is that the Spirit helps our weakness. The Spirit helps our, our spiritual blind spots of the things that we can't comprehend or understand that are bigger than just the situations in front of us. 
he helps us to align ourselves when we pray, even if we don't know the fullness. Turn back with me to to Romans 8, page 1301. Let's read these verses again, 26 and 7. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And this is a lot of complex statements to chew on. This is a a miraculous spiritual communication of how the Spirit intercedes, advocates to the Father on our behalf. It says that God searches our hearts first to find the places that are in alignment as we open our mouth as we come before the Lord God is searching us he is sifting through us like a, a search engine like Google looking at all the things that are in our heart and he's looking for the things that are not our will be done but his will be done It's like the Spirit highlights and hovers over those places when it finds them. If it finds them, God knows what the mindset of the Spirit is. So God and the Holy Spirit are one. They're united, right? So God knows what the desire of the Spirit is, and the desire of the Spirit is for what God's doing. So the Spirit then begins to groan and utter and murmur things that that we can't understand, right? We can't physically or spiritually really hear or grab a hold of because there's so much grander than our small needs, what we're going to eat or what we're going to wear or who we're going to spend time with today. They're eternal. And the Spirit utters these things before the Lord and it intercedes on our behalf the things that it knows from our hearts that are in agreement with the Lord. So if we go before the Lord and we say, oh, Lord, I know you want me to have this great mansion. And don't worry, Lord, if you're wondering how I'm going to use it for you, I'm going to invite people in and feed them and all of these things, right? I mean, that's just kind of a silly example. The Spirit just passes right over that. But the Spirit hovers and highlights and stays over those things that are in alignment with the Lord, and then it brings those things before the Lord, and it says, Lord, here's what you want to do. Please do it. Not their will, but your will be done. Then let's read verse 28 again. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Of course. Of course all things work together when we're right there with the Lord determined for his will to be done. The next verses 29 and 30, they get pretty intense, but we've got to read them joined with what we've been studying. 
Verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So we've got these words, foreknew and predestined, that are are, are big words. They have big theologies and many books and many people who have dedicated their lives to study these words and what they mean. I believe we must be careful with these words, especially not to allow them to condition how we read this passage. Instead, this passage should condition and qualify what these words mean for us. So this first word in verse 29, for whom he foreknew, this word foreknow is pretty straightforward. It means to know something beforehand or ahead of time. It has to do with understanding and awareness and knowledge of something. And this word only occurs a few times in the New Testament. So I want to look at one of the examples. Turn with me to 1 Peter 1, page 1391. 1 Peter chapter 1, page 1391. Let's read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses... 18 through 20. Peter says this, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. The same word here that we read from Romans, foreordained, is used here to describe Christ as the Lamb of God before the foundation of the world. So before anything was created, before any of us were born, the Lord knew his plan of salvation and foreordained that God would send his son Jesus as a lamb for us. Likewise, the word that we read predestined is very understandable. It is not challenging. It means to pre-establish boundaries or limits. In a similar way to foreordained, before creation, God had a framework for the things that he would create. Boundaries that would exist in creation. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 2 on page 1311. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 on page 1311. We'll read in chapter 2, just verse 7. Paul says, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. So this word is used here by Paul to describe this this mystery of the gospel that will be unfolded for God's people at the appointed time. 
and God knew that he would give it before he even founded the world. One other place we'll look at. Turn to Ephesians 1 on page 1343. Ephesians chapter 1, page 1343. We'll read together verse 5. Paul says, Having predestined, us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. God has predestined us who would follow him to be adopted as sons and daughters according to his will. All right, turn back with me to to Romans 8. Back to Romans 8 for the last time in the church's Bible on page 1301. These two ideas of being foreordained and predestined, they get forced into a debate over free will and God's sovereignty or God's influence or control over the world. And I don't want to, I don't want to ignore the significance that these words have and understanding God's purpose. But I believe the danger here is to overinterpret them. In essence, pulling our understanding here in Romans from the very direct and straightforward things that God is doing to focus on different things. Most focus on these words and, and they focused on who is saved and what number. They think that it that it matters if we have a choice in our salvation because God knew or didn't know in advance. Instead, I believe what Paul wants us to understand is why and for what purpose believers are saved. God goes into all of this detail for us here in Romans and in his scripture. He has this plan for salvation that that in, in one sense is very simple, but it is also thorough and comprehensive. Paul wants to make sure we understand that God did not save us for our purpose. It's a common thing to hear that even in the church, that each of you has a purpose, right? I have a purpose. God has a purpose for my work, he has a purpose for my kids, he has a purpose for my relationship, he has a purpose for my car, he has a purpose for all those things. Those become the priority, don't they? Making the things that we have in our life purposeful instead of seeing the why and for what reason God has saved us. His purpose. The things in this life have no meaning unless God alone is our purpose. The answer to these questions is directly given to us. To be conformed to the image of his son. Read in verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined these big ideas to be conformed to the image of his son that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. 
See, we've been learning about this week after week that we have been born into the image of Adam, into the image of sin. This is not difficult to understand, is it? We're sinful and we know it and we have no way out of it unless we are born again into the likeness and image of Jesus. That's the reason that he has saved us. And that we would be called, verse 30, that we would be justified and that we would be glorified. This is the picture of the lifetime of one called by the name of Jesus, that we would be called out from where we've been, that we would be justified from our sin, and that we would be glorified, that we would be purified for his purpose. These words do indeed have deep theological meaning, that there is an incredible harmony to God's sovereignty, his authority, and the fact that we do have free will. We can choose any day to do what we want to do, but we can't do what we want to do and call it God's purpose or God's will or things that he's working for his glory. The foreknowledge that God has for those who are predestined is not simply for salvation, but all the things, all the things that Paul is telling us in this message, that the hope we've been saved in would produce perseverance. That our heart's desire, our prayers would align with the Spirit. That we would remain forever in love with God and called according to His purpose. That we would be conformed not to the things of this world, to things of sin, but to the likeness of Jesus. That in obedience, we would be people he calls, he justifies, and glorifies. We're going to stop here today, but I want to look on one verse that we'll study, study next time. Verse 31. Paul transitions from these things and he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God can be for us, who can be against us? If all these things are true in our lives, who can be against us? I struggle to imagine what Paul would say about our present circumstances and how many twist his words, his words that Paul is living out even in prison. Words to mean that God goes around cleaning up messes like a parent following a child. And if you've ever followed a child around who makes messes, it's exhausting. God did not redeem us so he could follow us around and clean up our messes, but not direct us to his purpose. What Paul is telling each of us is that the spiritual things God has in store are at our fingertips. God has so much foreordained and predestined for each of us for his glory. I pray that we would receive them. Amen.
So 